I'm Jock Wilson, and this is Football North. We've got an outstanding couple of interviews coming your way on the program today. A little bit later on, we're going to check in with Calgary Stampeder linebacker coach Bob Slowick. Bob Slowick has an amazing resume. He started coaching in 1979 in the NCAA, spent 21 years in the NFL. As a matter of fact, his very first season in the NFL won a Super Bowl championship with the Dallas Cowboys. The last four years, he has been coaching in the Canadian Football League, started with the Montreal Alouettes as their defensive coordinator, and now is with the Calgary Stampeders and has been for the last couple of seasons. But we're going to open the podcast today with a one-on-one chat. George Hopkins, the longtime equipment manager for the Calgary Stampeders. George Hopkins, his 1,000th game in the Canadian Football League. It's quite a milestone, a historic milestone. And, of course, this includes all of the games that he has been around for 50 years in this league. He goes one-on-one with our Greg Peterson. Greg Peterson, a former CFLer. He's now the color commentator for 770 CHQR in Calgary. Okay, I'm here with uh, George Hopkins, my good friend and legendary career with the Calgary Stampeders. George, you've had uh, 50 years now. I don't think anybody's ever going to break that record. At least they won't for the next 50 years, plus 1,000 games and over. So let's just go back to the beginning. Uh, How did you start uh, your journey with the Stampeders? How old were you and how did you first start? Um, I was 13 at the time I was looking for a summer job um, and my uncle Johnny Hopkins used to be a uh, feature columnist with the Herald and Georgie Dunn who was the equipment manager before me him and Johnny were good friends and over a cocktail one evening uh, it came up that Georgie was looking for a ball boy so I got a call from my uncle the next morning and went to the stadium um, Walked in the locker room, got directed to George Dunn's office, had a three and a half second interview and was on the field five minutes later from my first practice. So kind of a wham bam. Well, that's a long interview to get that first job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so George, there's been, I'd say over 20, maybe more Stampeder head coaches throughout your time with the Stamps and probably thousands of players if you wanna go through all the players that have run through your locker room. Uh, Are there any that you can mention that were a good influence on you or that you thoroughly enjoyed working with? Coaching-wise, yeah, there's been more than a few. Um, I mean, you get back, Jack Gota gave me my first head position, um, and Jack kind of changed the fortune for the Stampeders in the late 70s. Took a gamble on an 18-year-old kid. I just turned 18, and and they had... uh, um, let the equipment manager go that I had just spent the last five weeks training after they replaced George Dunn. They brought a guy in that didn't know what he was doing, um, wanted to do it part-time, but brought me back to be his mentor and his trainer. So at 17, I'm training a 45-year-old guy. Um, that didn't work out. I went into Jack's office the day after I turned 18 and said, you need an equipment manager, I need a full-time job, or I'm going to school in, in the fall, so it's your call. And Jack took a gamble on a kid. Um, so I owe that. And then you got other coaches along the way, like Tom Higgins, been through the organization two or three times, very class guy. Huff's unbelievable to work with. Dickey's unbelievable to work with. Um, more good ones than bad ones. Unfortunately, 
your expiration date as a coach can precede what kind of person you are. So there's only been a couple that I don't speak of favorably. Most of them have been really good to work with. Well, that's great. Uh, so going through your 50-year career, what are some of your more special moments in your careers as, as a Stampeder? Uh, certainly first Grey Cup. I mean, uh, I start in 1972, and we don't get to a Grey Cup game till 1991, as you well know. Yep. I was beginning to think that I was, you know, the curse of the organization. Um, and then winning it in 92, I've been fortunate enough to win five more. Um, the last one is almost as memorable as the first one, only because we did that one in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, and after they celebrated three great cups in our locker room, it only seemed fitting that we got to do one in theirs. Um, going up on the wall in 2014 was very humbling, as is this whole experience this week. Um, so there's been a lot of, of good times along the way. I, I mean, hell, I remember the SOS campaign in 1985. Um, fondly now, but I mean, I worked for two months without a, a paycheck. So everything's relative, right? Um, but, yeah, um, I, I can honestly say that there hasn't been too many days that I haven't enjoyed working. Well, I just feel privileged that I was a member with you on that 92 team and 91 team. I remember when we got to do that, go to the Great Cup. So uh, those are good, f- fond memories. So I, if you look back at some of the older equipment that uh, used they wore in the 70s and the 80s, so how has equipment uh, changed through the course of your uh, career? Uh, infinitely better, without any questions. Um, by and large, it's a lot lighter. Uh, we now will turn around and, and we'll scan a guy's helmet. We have the technology in our locker room with an iPad and an app that we got from Rydell that we can actually scan a player's head, send that information to Riddell, and they build a helmet based off of that 3D image of that guy's head that only fits Bo Levi Mitchell. (laughs) So, I mean, in the past where you played around a long time tinkering with air cells and getting things just right, now we've got 15 guys on on our team alone that are in scanned helmets that that just fit them. Uh, Shoulder pads have got much, much lighter. Uh, much smaller. I mean, in, you look at a defenseman in the National Hockey League might have more shoulder pad now than a wide receiver does. Right. Ours is considerably better as far as absorption and, and technique and everything, but they've got much more minimal. Um, uniforms used to be very cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you've seen what we've done now where it's skin tight and you've got to basically dress some of the people because they can't get the stuff on themselves so and undress and undress too yeah so i mean it, it's changed a lot but um it as everything else has as, as things have changed um with technology and with different fabrics um and we've continued to be on the cutting end of it which i'm very proud of well and i and i know you are and, and so i consider you george probably and many people do as if not the leading person for football equipment in all of Canada, one of the leading people. So what do you see in the future for football equipment? I think more of of what we've talked about, it's going to become um, even more form-fitting. The materials that that go into it now, you can put so much absorption into a piece of foam that in the past would have been six inches thick and now is a quarter of an inch thick. So you're going to continue to see more minimal. 
at our level for sure. But I mean, it, it's even working its way down into the youth. You look at youth football now, um, those kids used to be considerably bigger when they ran around than they are now. Um, and it's, it's made its way down. Everything's just so lightweight. I mean, even a pair of shoes now, uh, they come with a thing on the back of the, of the box that tells you how many ounces those shoes were. Not how many pounds, but how many ounces. And it's, it's just, it's incredible what's changed. Um, and it's good because the game has progressively got harder hitting and not necessarily more violent, but certainly more impactful. Well, and it's good that people like yourself are out there um, in the cutting edge with regard to protecting players because we want to see more youth into it, and that leads into the sec- my second uh, headway that I want to talk about. And you're involved in Calgary minor football. You're a director and the vice president of the Calgary Spring Football Association. Uh, how did that come about, and how do you enjoy being involved in minor football in Calgary? You asked that with all innocence, and you were the one that got me involved. <laughs> so... Um, I've tried to be involved with youth football basically since I started off. I mean, I was 21 and I went back to the old Ernest Manning High School that I graduated from and went through and did my first helmet inspection and told them what needed to be changed out and that kind of stuff. So that goes back to the early 80s. Um, thoroughly enjoy Calgary Spring because it's, um, it's kids that are probably at a little bit higher level football skills um, most of them, and it's a chance to get more film and, and get recognized and get a scholarship, and they get to play um, more games, and it's it's really made a big difference. Uh, all you got to do is look at the provincial titles that Calgary schools have taken in the 15 years that that league's been in existence compared to what they didn't take beforehand because they weren't playing enough football. So. Um, it's, it's a well-run league. There's a very dedicated board that we're part of that, that really puts a lot into it, and I think it's probably recognized as the premier spring league in the country. Yep. And I agree, and it's great to have your expertise because right now it seems like we need that expertise more and more as it, it goes on. Um, I know that uh, during my entire tenure career with the Stampeders, whenever we won a game, from the time I started as a Stampeder until the time I ended, you always played a Rolling Stone song after we won. And sometimes I'm now up in the booth, and after we win a game, I'm still hearing that same Rolling Stone song. So how did that come about, and does it have any particular background meaning? Um, it's Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, um, and it, it's an inside joke between me and the team chaplain at the time, actually. Um, but Danny Barrett had got into the stereo after a game and put MC Hammer can't, can't touch this on, and I immediately made sure that we weren't playing that the next game, and i big Rolling Stones fan. So since 1990, that has been the victory song that we play, and uh, it's, it's one of those songs that... Once you've heard it a couple times, you want to hear it again, and we don't have any problems with anybody in the locker room singing along, so it'll stay that way. Well, and we like hearing it because the Stamps win. Um, Another uh, legendary thing or great thing that you started was Black Betty Day. How did you start that, and what's the story behind it? Same thing. A guy got hold of the stereo equipment that probably wishes he never had, Um, but... uh, the stereo has always been able for guys to play. It's located in the locker room, but all you got to do is ask. And a guy came in, didn't ask, put some music on that we didn't feel was appropriate. And this would have been 1993 when CDs were first starting to come out, and I had a little 3D sampler 
three songs, three different versions of Ram Jam's Black Betty. So we put it on and we hit repeat on it at 7.15 in the morning and just played it all day long. And it's really morphed into a, a life of its own now. We put it on the speaker so that the guys get to practice both practices. We put it in the vans that shuttle them back and forth to the stadium from the university. Um, and it's now, I think this year, we had 17 different versions of the song. So it doesn't quite drive you as crazy as it used to, but you'll hear it. Well, and it's also famous across the CFL now. Everybody knows about it. Uh, can you tell us about a player who has been most particular about his equipment or a few stories about players and their equipment idiosyncrasies? Because I know that uh, uh, you had to deal with a lot of difficult things with players and demands on their equipment. You got any kind of cute stories about that? Um, bit of both. Um uh... We, I've always said that idiosyncrasies and superstitions are fine unless they interfere with somebody else. Um, so we leave guys alone that want to do what, what they feel is necessary to get ready for the game. Um, one of the, the things that I did do that it, I felt bad about for about a day, um, we used to have a kicker way back in the day before JT called Cyril McFall. And Cyril was very particular about he had to go out for a warm-up and then when he came in, he had to have a whole brand new uniform laid out for him. That it couldn't be what he kicked warm up in. It had to be a whole brand new one. And it had to be laid out on the floor traditionally just perfect for him. And he'd go take a shower, dry off, and change into his new uniform. And this is before we had two sets of everything for everybody that we do nowadays. And it was a real pain in the ass, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And Cyril went in to take a shower, and I had put... Um, for lack of a better term, food coloring in the, in the shampoo. And Cyril screamed and came out, and his whole body had turned blue. And that was the last time that he ever asked to have a second set of... And it's really the last time that I've ever really torn apart somebody for being a little bit in, uh, weird about their uniform, we'll put it that way. But there's been... Lots of guys over the years, most of it's pretty harmless. You know, the left side goes first. You put left sock, left side of your pants, and everything else. Um, the only other thing was, you remember Bruce Covington that you played oh, yeah. with? And we played a trick on Covey one day where he was boasting about how he'd lost a lot of weight and he could easily get down into a, a three-size smaller pair of pants. So I took a size 34 pant and put a size 40 label in it, and everybody in the place knew except Bruce. And we all sat and watched him try in vain to get into these pants before somebody laughed and just lost it. So um, you can have some fun with idiosyncrasies for sure. Well, and, uh, you know, football players got that. But uh, what are some, uh, I know that I, a couple times I've seen some pretty bashed up helmets on a, on a hit, but uh, what, are, what are some of the most unusual equipment incidents that maybe you've had over during your 50 years? Um, we've had guys hit each other and face masks have been locked together and we physically had to go out and take masks off. Um, opposing players at the 20-yard line with screwdrivers because they were so firmly entrenched with each other. Um, you don't see many helmets break anymore uh, just because of the nature of the plastic. Um, but I do remember... Um, one player walking off the field, Bernie Morrison, way back in the day, and half of his helmet had just fallen off. Hmm. 
So needless to say, you don't try and fix that. You just no. replace it. No. Well, the trainer takes a good look at him and figures out whether he's got any marbles left in place or not. So, Well, I'm sure you've seen uh, quite a few incidents, but I want to now finish off with a couple of rapid-fire questions that you can give me some rapid-fire answers. So first one, George, uh, best road stadium in the CFL for equipment managers and why? Uh, probably Winnipeg. Um, big, huge room. Uh, lots of rooms. We have our own actual equipment room that we can set out, up in. The coach's room is good. The player's room isn't fancy by any means, but it's, it's very expansive and it, it's very easy to get around. Plus, it's a short load in. Worst road stadium in the CFL for equipment managers and why? Uh, Molson Stadium in Montreal, without question. Um, very cramped. It's the uh, McGill, I'm not sure, it used to be the Redmond, whatever they are. Um, it's their home soccer uh, locker room for the girls' team. So uh, you can't move in it. It's unbelievably tight, and it's a long load in, and there's no airflow in it and it's just about as bad as you can get. Okay. <laughs> Biggest head or helmet for any Stampeder you ever had to fit a helmet into? guy by the name of Joni Medford came up from a Texas college in 1980, and Jack Goda took one look at him when he walked in and pointed me towards the... We had a telephone booth on the outside in front of the uh, locker room entrance that was sponsored by TELUS and it was red, had two horses on the side of it. He looked at Jody, looked at me and said, you're probably going to have to put him in that goddamn telephone booth. <laughs> so, huge head. What, what was the size? Eight and three-eighths. Oh. And um, biggest shoe size you've ever had for any Stampeder? Uh, we've had a couple guys. The name's going to escape me, but I've had two 17s and an 18. Holy cow. Yeah. And, and what's the smallest shoe size? Richie Hall at a seven. Richie did have seven. Well, yep. I had an eight, so he didn't beat me by much. So. Nope. <laughs> Funniest Stampeder ever over your 50-year career? Uh, probably just with a sly sense of humor that was just did nothing but make you laugh would have been Willie Burden. <laughs> yeah, great guy. Legend, too. Yeah. Uh, most unusual equipment request you ever had? Um, a purple jock strap. Can I ask who? <laughs> no, you can, I, but I'm not going to tell okay. you. Okay. Per, any particular reason why I wanted it purple? That, that's why I had to ask him. I said, why does it have to be purple? And he just gave me a, a little bit of a sly grin. It took me a year, but I found one. <laughs> okay. We won't get any further than that. Most enjoyable moment over your 50 years? Uh, 92 Grey Cup. Without, I mean, there's some that are real close to that, but the first Grey Cup, when you win it, after the amount of time that it took me to get there, yeah, 92 Grey Cup. And um, most unusual equipment request ever. The purple jock strap had to be right up there. Purple jock (laughs) is right up there. I don't know if I can top that or not. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Worst uniforms in the CFL? Ooh, I am not a fan, honestly, of Hamilton's new gray one. Neither am I. Agree with you there. Best uniforms in the CFL? I'm biased. Um, I think our black, when we had the... um, the, black, the helmet that the you designed, helmet, yeah. which, by the way, for all listeners, George designed that helmet. Yeah, I still think that was the best one. Um, otherwise, I'm part. I'm very partial to our, our red retro. And uh, best logo in the CFL. Ours actually, our horse is recognized. I think number three in North America as far as logo recognition. So. Biased again, but I'll go there. I'd have to agree with you. And by the way, we have a trademark on that, and uh, 
trade na uh, name. So, so George, uh, what are your plans over the next uh, little bit? Uh, any plans to retire? You want to try and go another 50 years? I don't know if you will, but... No, no I can safely say I won't do 50. Um, I Pretty good gene pool that I come from, but I'm not going to work that long. Um, w when I realized that 50 was coming up, I kind of looked at it and, and thought I wouldn't mind doing 55 years. So that's kind of the thought process. If everything holds up body-wise, health-wise, I'll work another five years, and then I would fully intend to come to games. I'm not sure I'm going to work them. Okay, well, it's, uh, you deserve it. So, George, congratulations on 1,000 games. Congratulations on 50 great years, uh, memorable and legendary career as a Calgary Stampeder, and it's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. George Hopkins, uh, best and greatest equipment manager ever in CFL history. <laughs> My pleasure, Pete. Thank you. Bob Slowick joins us on the program. And, and Bob, I, I got to tell you, I, I was looking at your resume earlier today, and, and I think a lot of football fans probably know your resume. You started coaching in 1979, 11 years with the NCAA, 21 years with the NFL, you know, four years with the Canadian Football League. So I guess the obvious question is, when, when did you know you were going to become a coach and, and make this your career path? Oh, that's a great question. The uh, You know, I played football at the University of Delaware. That's where I uh, played my college football. And we had a really, we had a great staff. Uh, and I think that a lot of my uh, coaching, coaching, uh, oh, I don't know what your personality comes from, my, my experiences there at the University of Delaware because they were extremely professional. They were prepared. They were teachers. They loved the game. They loved coaching their pet players their passion was incredible and um i think that carried over and when i finished playing there was uh, i just there was just nothing else i wanted to do i wanted to do what they were doing and i thought i had some real experience and some insight into into the game that i could pass on to younger players and and help them become uh, the best they could be and reach their fullest potential was was there an individual that gave you that first opportunity that you look back and say, wow, I wouldn't be where I am today without uh, this individual? Oh, well, there's a couple. Number one is my wife. <laughs> She's, she is a, uh, she was a, a, a highly uh, decorated uh, uh, track runner. She was a 100-meter hurdler and uh, very successful. And when she finished running at the University of Delaware at that time, it was a club, she was asked, uh, without even coaching a day in her life, she had a call from the University of Florida, which is an SEC place at, mm -hmm. in the U.S., a, a, a quite a uh, notable school, and was asked to become the head women's track coach. And I was uh, what was called a GA, graduate assistant at the University of Delaware at the time. And she said, and we were just getting married or just got married a few months ago. Well, I shouldn't take that. You've got to stay here. I said, no, you got to take the job. And she took the job. I just walked into the football office with the recommendation of our head coach at Delaware. It was named Tubby Raymond. And uh, they put me on my field or on the field. And I started my coaching career right there at the University of Florida in one of the big time programs. So that was really my first opportunity. Then after that, uh, probably the, the next person that gave me an opportunity, I was in college for Oh, 11, I think it was actually 13 years. And um, someone I went to high school with 
stayed in contact with who also got into coaching was named Dave Wanstead. And he was ended up being a head coach in the NFL for, oh, 11, 12 years, something of that nature. But he worked for the Dallas Cowboys as their coordinator. They had an opening, called me, and, and as they say, the rest is history. So those are the two people that gave me the the opportunity, gave me the chance to get my foot in the door, get into the league, and go from there. And uh, the person I worked the longest for was named Mike Shanahan. I worked almost 10 years with Mike, and he just such a fabulous head coach and innovator. He's mastermind of the offense. I think there's probably, well, obviously, his son Kyle's the head coach of the 49ers, and there's Matt LaFleur to Green Bay Packers who worked under Mike, got his start uh, because of that. There's uh, obviously Sean McVay at the Rams, got his start. There's Mike McDaniel now at Miami. His roots go all through the NFL, and his offense goes even further than that. He was just a mastermind of the zone zone run game, and that's morphed into all the things it is now this at this day and age. That, that's a fantastic story, Bob. I appreciate that. And, and, and hey, uh, if people that follow your career know you've got a son by the name of Bobby, and, and he's an offensive coach with the 49ers right now, and you're a defensive guy. He's an offensive guy. How in the heck did that happen? <laughs> that, that's a great story in itself. <laughs> he, uh, he started as a receiver at a small school called Michigan Tech, and uh, it's always, was always he played both sides in high school, but then ended up just being a uh, receiver in college. And then from there, he got his opportunity to get into coaching, actually at Washington with Mike Shanahan, and I was there as a DB coach, but he didn't start coaching. He came into the program as a as a video assistant, worked in the video department for two years, and um, wanted to get into coaching. There were no openings on offense, so our coordinator named Jim Haslett was in the league for a long time. He uh, he developed a relationship with Bobby and thought he'd be good as a coach, so he brought him on as a defensive assistant. So he started his coaching career as a defensive guy, mostly because that was the opportunity he got. But anybody that has an opportunity to work both sides of the ball should do it because it gives you such a, a greater appreciation and a, a greater foundation of what they're thinking on the other side of the field. If you are a defensive coach, you know what the offense thinks. If you're an offensive coach, you have an idea what the defense is thinking, which is what's really helping them right now is the, is the past game coordinator at the Niners because he has that defensive background to help him with, with any of the planning he needs to do on offense. Uh, you, you know what? It is a great story. And, and I know, you know, you, you were lucky enough to go down with Dave and uh, spend some time with the 49ers uh, in the offseason. Dave Dickinson has uh, told me the story, which is uh, which is fantastic. But I'm, I'm running out of time. So I, I got to ask you one more question here, because I believe your first NFL job was uh, with the Cowboys in 1992. And if correct. my memory serves me correct, you know, you you go to the NFL your very first season, you win a Super Bowl championship with that uh, with that Dallas Cowboys. They were young, fast on defense, the doomsday defense, uh, Super Bowl record nine turnovers. Uh, you must have thought this is going to be easy. I'm going to win Super Bowls every single year. <laughs> John, I knew way better than that. <laughs> Trust me, the first <laughs> that year was incredible for a number of reasons. That winning Super Bowl was. It was absolutely phenomenal, and uh, but I did realize all the work that went into it. I came from 
from college that plays 12 games. Jock, it was the most exhausting year in my life because we played basically uh, two college football seasons in one with five preseason games and, of course, the 16-game regular season. And then you had the three playoff games, including the Super Bowl. I was flat worn out. That was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was just incredible the amount of time, preparation, and and the endless amount of hours you put into to getting to the Super Bowl and winning it. That's why it's so special. Uh, you know what? Uh, you know, it is special, and obviously that's something you'll always remember. Has the, you, know, you mentioned you're still learning the Canadian game. You've been involved in the Canadian game now for four years, so you, you know it pretty well. But is, is there a big adjustment you know, going from NCAA, NFL to Canada? Um, you know, Mike Shanahan was actually here at this game against Winnipeg. He and his wife and uh, some of our other friends from Denver came to the game, and we've always been wanting them to come up and uh, and check out the CFL game and uh, what that's like. And he just absolutely loved it, loved the speed of how the game is, 20-second play clock. Of course, is it's different than the NFL's 40. So all those things were really, really good. And our organization uh, John Huffnagel and Dave treated them just fantastic. He had a great time watching the game. Would have felt much better with a win, as we all would have, but sometimes that happens. But I was telling him the thing that the the thing I had to adjust to uh, it took the longest, I should say, to adjust to. Not the twelve guys. That was not. I shouldn't say anything, but that was very easy. There was no. It didn't take long to adapt to that. The field didn't have to take long to adapt to that. The motions just, not that the motions were difficult. Once the game was over, you put the video on, you could adjust, develop a game plan. But me, myself, as a coach, after X amount of years, 30 years in American football, I'm used to being able to watch a play, know exactly what happened. Well, with all the motion and all that eye candy going on, it took me quite a while to adjust to find out what's happening, to visualize what just went on and where we need to correct or how we need to adjust defensively, so on and so forth. So he and I were talking about that, and that's that's probably the thing that you have to adjust to uh, or that's most difficult to adjust to. All right, that does it for another edition of Football North. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast and tuning in. Would love to hear your feedback. Maybe you have a topic idea for the show. You can always hit me up on my email, jock at am770chqr.com.